and welcome to the first Dairy Dialogue podcast of 2022. And the holidays are already not visible in the rearview mirror. And I'm probably one of the last to be able to say Happy New Year. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it does feel like it's been a while since the last podcast. Probably because it has been. And this is number 164, if anyone's counting. Clearly I am. Since Boxing Day here in the UK, I've been suffering from the cold that our son gave us both as a Christmas gift, and it still hasn't gone away. And it's not COVID. I love the dirty looks I've been getting in the stores when I cough, often, ironically, from people not bothering to wear masks. Anyway, the tests have all been negative. The weather's been rotten too, so yesterday I got brave and went out for a long walk in the pouring rain. That's probably extended the cold by another week. I don't really know what's worse, the cough or the cough syrup that I'm taking right now. As I predicted, the first couple of weeks after Christmas have been a bit of a struggle for news. Things you'd get in July and delete instantly at this time of the year, you think, well, maybe I can stretch that into something. I've been lucky so far that there's been just about enough to keep things ticking over, but it's definitely not ideal. Anyway, I hope you had a great holiday and got the proverbial batteries recharged. I don't think I have any interesting things to say about the holiday period, other than I didn't really do much. The next thing on the agenda here at home is to get connected smoke and CO2 alarms installed, because it becomes the law in Scotland in February. We do have smoke alarms, but they aren't connected. And it does really make sense to be as safe as you possibly can be. But of course, online, there's been plenty of how dare anyone tell me what to do social media posts. Some of them are quite funny. They go all environmental, likely people who have never recycled anything in their life, asking how much landfill is going to be taken up with all the old smoke alarms. I think I'm going to have to give up reading things on social media. It's too frustrating and you just get worked up. And it really doesn't matter if it's news, sports or music. There's always someone got to twist everything around and make it negative. You should have to pay to leave comments online. That would shut people up. They could call it a troll booth. Sorry. The travel situation doesn't seem to have changed much. There have been a couple of events pushed back, so let's hope by spring travel is a bit more normal. And I remember saying that at exactly the same time last year. Of course, it doesn't matter too much if the UK government is relaxing the rules for getting back into the country if no one wants people from the UK in their country to start with. It's been a while since the last podcast and I actually couldn't remember who was on this week and had to check it out. So here's who our guests are. We have conversations with Jennifer Stout, Head of Operations, Agriculture and Supply Chain, Northern Europe at NSF International, Uli Nasibova, founder of Uli's Gelato, and Elza von Hottam, CEO of Next Firm USA. And of course, it's back on track with the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. As I mentioned, there hasn't been a podcast for a few weeks. I'm not going to run through all of the news you may have missed over that time. I'll just do the last week, in spite of it being slow on the news front. Due to the pandemic, we've had a couple of events get pushed back, Dairy Tech and Sidjep. We had an interview about Illy's ice cream production facility in Indonesia, and the US and Canada have both claimed victory over the recent trade dispute. Speaking of disputes, a U.S. court has said that the term Gruyere is a common name and anyone can make the cheese. Belarus company Uniflex 
started the industrial production of monomaterial structure packaging, and in India, the Assam government and the National Dairy Development Board have signed a joint venture MOU to reduce imports. Foodative has developed a vegan precision fermentation casein, Arla has doubled its emissions target, and Fonterra has revised its milk collection forecast. IFF launched new Yomix Prime yogurt cultures, and Oterra launched an extended caramel range. There were some 2022 trend articles, as you can imagine, with Wisconsin revealing the top cheese trends, some 2022 food trends from the IFIC, and N2 Applied looked at dairy trends and challenges. It's also been quite busy on the acquisition front. We had articles on Oterra acquiring food ingredient solutions, Ferk buying dairy packaging company Pacor, and SIG taking over the evergreen fresh carton business in Asia. There have also been some management changes at Dairy Gold, Shore Flexibles, and the Canadian Dairy Commission. And of course, you can read all of these and many more at dairyreporter.com. Now that I think about it, there actually was a bit more news than I thought. Okay, let's get to this week's interviews. The first one is a look at what's happening in the UK with all of the supply chain issues and the pandemic in 2021, and what we can look forward to in 2022. To give us an insight is Jennifer Stout, Head of Operations, Agriculture and Supply Chain, Northern Europe at NSF International. And bear in mind, this was recorded in late December, so anytime we say next year, it means 2022. I guess if you could tell me a little bit about NSF International. Certainly, yep. NSF International is an independent global organisation. We were founded about 75 years ago, and we are committed to protecting human health and safety across the globe, basically. I wonder if you could go through what kind of challenges we can expect in 2022 or whether it's just a continuation of what we're already experiencing. Yeah, certainly. Okay, so I think basically as we come towards the end of 2021 again, 2022, there have certainly been and will continue to be a lot of challenges. I think basically going forward into next year, every farmer probably across the world, would like to see some stability and would like to see sustainable growth. I think if anyone could have told me that COVID would still be around with the new variants, we'd have laughed, you know, we wouldn't have believed you. But having said that, going forward into 2022, there are challenges, but challenges aren't necessarily a bad thing. We have left the EU, we've had the chance to develop our own ag policy Within that, DEFRA is saying that it's public money for public goods. So they are interested in the likes of animal welfare, in initiatives to increase biodiversity, um, restore landscapes. And within that, NSF are heavily involved. We do about 30,000 farm audits a year. Within every livestock audit we do, there is an element of animal welfare um, we'll also do about 600 leaf audits a year, linking environment and farming, where farmers are encouraged to farm in a sustainable way. So there is there's an element of earned recognition. The government are thinking of introducing some earned recognition and the farmers who 
have these assurance schemes in place at the moment, we'll be able to prove that earned recognition. On top of that, going forward, challenges next year are things like a continuation of the higher feed, fuel, energy bills. That has substantially increased farmers' costs with inflation now at above 5%. Food for livestock, fuel costs, energy bills, etc. will play a major part in determining profitability of farms for 2022. And as far as those challenges are concerned, do you think that any of those can be overcome to any extent? I think they can be overcome. So we are particularly looking at challenges of rising costs. So so farmers have seen, as I just mentioned, rising costs in food, fuel and energy and also in labour. One thing that's being addressed at the moment is this labour shortage. The government have introduced something called the Seasonal Workers Scheme, which is allowing and will continue to allow workers to come in from abroad to work in the edible horticulture sector, to work in the poultry industry, the pig industry, and to drive those HGV lorries. So the government have brought that in, so that will definitely help the labour situation. The problem within labour and farming at the moment is that, okay, people like the lifestyle, but it's, you know, if you earn £30,000 a year doing 60 to 70 hours a week milking cows, it is in fact much easier to earn £30,000 doing a 40-hour week and working in an office. Having said that, there will always be people who will want to work on farms and it is important if there is a shortage of staff in the agricultural industry that the best ones are picked. Training and development become more important than ever. With NSF, we have a consulting arm um, where we will do training with staff and our courses include things like BRC courses for food, food safety, internal auditing, um, HACCP legislation, etc. And these are skills and courses that probably our next generation of employees within the agricultural industry will need. And I think one of the things that we're seeing with dairy and other agricultural commodities around the world is that the prices are going up and the farmers are complaining that their costs are going up, as you already mentioned, but they're not getting the amount of money that they want in order to be able to compensate for that. Where are we going in that respect? Is that all going to be, do you think, borne by the end consumer? Prices of inputs are going up rapidly for farmers at the moment. I mean, it, it's there's some work that's been done on this and they're saying that the increase in food and fuel costs adds about two pence a litre to the milk costs. Now, lots of the milk purchasers have announced a price increase for farmers for the milk they produce for next year. So that's across the board. So that will most definitely help. I think farmers can find ways around reducing their costs. Some of it might involve restructuring. So, for example, smaller dairy farms can use more in the way of robotics. That is difficult on a large farm. That's very expensive on a large farm. Um, Scaling back might be an option for some farmers, reducing your labour costs, etc. So there are ways of reducing your costs of labour. If you want to reduce your costs of food and fuel, to make more of a margin from 
each litre of milk, you basically need to be producing more milk from forage. It's going to be cheaper, I feel, next year to spend more on fertiliser, okay, than it will be on buying in that extra food. Is there a danger, do you think, that by cutting costs that other considerations are diminished, such as sustainability, the environment? Is there a danger there? The two should be able to happen hand in hand, sustainability and cutting costs. The government has introduced something called ELMS, Environmental Land Management Scheme, that promotes this biodiversity farming environmental way, etc. And encourages things like not farming right up to the base of hedges. Now, that last couple of metres of land adjoining a hedge is not very productive. So if we are not putting fertiliser on there, if we are not grazing right into the bottom of hedges, actually we're producing, okay, slightly less food, but we're also significantly reducing our costs. So I, I do feel it's possible to uh, farm in an environmentally friendly way and reduce your costs. Sure. One of the things that I was thinking about there is the fact that when it comes to emissions, dairy farms are being asked to reduce emissions, which can come at a cost because if you're having to purchase different feed or if you're having to purchase methane inhibiting products to try and reduce the amount of methane entering into the environment. But again, it's like who's going to be paying for that and and is that going to, are they going to say, well, we can't afford that, so we're not going to sign up to any of those environmental improvements? Well, those environmental schemes, a lot of them are quite simple. And for example, there's a a big element of um, soil health within some of those schemes. Now, just to comply with the soil health conditions which are within these new schemes, you very easily make 50% of your BPS payment. So I think whilst farmers think these schemes might be expensive, they might they're difficult. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of paperwork. I know that from personal experience. I'm I'm just um, submitting a, a stewardship application at the moment for the farm at home, so I know there's a lot of paperwork. But it's easy money, and I have to say, this money you're getting from the government is the easiest amount of money you're going to make. And so, as far as 2022 is concerned, we've already seen supply chain issues in terms of you going to the grocery stores and the supermarkets and there are certain things missing is that do you anticipate that that's going to be the same in 2022 or that that will improve some of those problems with empty shelves on the supermarkets were due to the shortage of lorry drivers in this country the government have introduced this seasonal workers scheme that will encourage hgv drivers to come in from abroad i believe the uptake of um HGV courses and tests in this country is on the increase. I think invariably there will be some slight shortages, but as we all know, meat prices have gone up this year, primarily because less meat was bought in from abroad due to COVID. So supplies, for example, from New Zealand have been greatly suppressed. Beef prices have risen about 20% this year. I can tell you from personal experience taking lambs to market that lamb prices have risen by about 22%. So that in turn will encourage, I feel, farmers, for example, to put 
more used to the ram at the moment. So there probably will be more home produced meat around next year, which should help alleviate some of those shortages. Those price increases that you mentioned, is that going to all be borne by the end consumer or are there are the manufacturers of the products or the retailers going to have to take a little less? The milk buyers in this country have offered dairy farmers a little bit more for their milk. So that means that probably the margin they can achieve, if you like, they can accept slightly less from supermarkets because they're getting more for the milk from the milk buyers in the first place. I think it's peaks and troughs, isn't it, in the whole cycle of things and prices will stabilise. Undoubtedly, they will stabilise. Good. That's good to know. And what's NSF's role in all of this as as we move forward? How do you fit into the So we're doing about 30,000 farm audits a year. We go onto the farms and we make sure that farmers are producing high quality, safe food. And I think ultimately that's what the consumer wants as well, don't they? They want to know that food's being produced in this manner with high welfare standards, in a sustainable manner, etc. And everything's safe right through from the farm, from the day that animal's born through slaughterhouses, through supply chains, right through to the supermarket shelves. That food can be traced all that way through that supply chain. Now we're on to some cutting-edge ingredients with Next Firm, which is a fermentation company that produces fermented vegan proteins for food. And rather than me get bogged down by trying to explain it all, we chatted with Next Firm USA CEO Elza van Hotam, who first gave me some background on the company. Next Firm is an Israeli food tech company that is publicly traded in the Israeli Stock Exchange. It was formed almost five years ago by two exes of a previous food tech company called Enzymotech. And somehow we found ourselves working together in this company called NextFirm. So generally speaking, NextFirm is managed by people that this is their second time around in that category of health and nutrition and advanced technologies. NextFirm itself is organized around the concept of using single cell fermentation specifically yeast, as a source of novel or better active ingredients or food ingredients for human nutrition. And the idea is very simple. Fermentation represents an outstanding, agile, sustainable, efficient approach to supplying food. I think it's widely recognized today that this is one of the pillars of future food sources, regardless of what you're producing. And as such, you can use, uh, in our case, yeast as a primary source for that. Yeast has been around with human culture, with human civilization, since humans are a civilization. One can think about the use of bread or beer and alcohol or yogurt. All of those uh, great foods are actually a direct result of the use of yeast as a component, as an essential component in making those uh, palatable and and foods that are part of our diet. In our case, we are using types of uh, yeast that are common for the same purpose. 
Another aspect of our current approach is to use non-GMO technologies. It's uh, very common today, and it has a place definitely, to leverage genetic editing and other forms of genetic manipulation of existing yeast or other forms of microorganisms to produce a desired molecule. It could be a protein, it could be something else. Until now, we have not uh, taken that approach, and our, one of the aspects of our uh, strategy and approach is non-GMO technologies to select and breed and make use of yeast strains in a way that is both functional or useful for humans and economical in the same way. Through the years, we have developed our first product. We use the yeast strain called Pafia. That doesn't really matter the, the technical name, but that yeast strain naturally expresses the astaxanthin. This is a form of an antioxidant, a carotenoid, a food colorant that is commonly used today as a dietary supplement and has traditionally been used from algae sources. We have been using a yeast, a natural yeast, through a natural process to obtain the same product and by doing so, gaining some significant advantages that are the result of the fermentation process over the, let's call it, traditional yeast. As a second stage, and this is, I guess, the, the main topic of our conversation today, is to apply fermentation, know-how in the selection of strain and fermentation and downstream processing in order to isolate a high-quality protein out of baker's yeast. Saccharomyces cerevisiae, baker's yeast, sometimes uh, has a cousin called the Brewer's yeast, they are all part of a, a larger family that, again, has been around with the human culture, civilization for millennia. It's a ubiquitous say, microorganism and technology. We dial it in a way that makes it not as a source for making bread and so on, but as a source of a protein that is isolated from that biomass and as such has the distinctive advantages over the prevailing, the common, the generic forms of protein that are currently isolated from plants also. And so in terms of the relevance to the dairy and plant-based industry, how does it fit in with the dairy alternative proteins or proteins that are alternatives to dairy? When considering dairy as one of the key segments parallel to meat and maybe eggs and other forms of human diet, dairy is definitely going to and is going through a significant transformation from the traditional sources, animal sources, to an alternative one. And there are today two strategies. I mentioned the, the one, like Perfect Day is a good example, where you perform some genetic manipulation over some kind of microorganism in order to obtain milk-like, dairy-like protein or protein. On the other side of the spectrum is the use of proteins that comes from plants of sorts, pea, rice, almonds, and so on, as a source of a protein in a, in a milk-like or dairy-like application. It could be the milk, what we drink in a carton. It could be yogurt. It could be ice cream and so on and so forth, cheese. Thinking about plants as that source, there are significant drawbacks when considering plants as a solution or as the, as the only solution to create a food item that mimics 
or has some similarities to traditional dairy. There is the issue of flavor. Usually the plant proteins that comes out have problematic flavor that requires a lot of masking in forms of excipients, sugars, and the like. They have low digestibility. There is a standard called PDCAS, which basically represents the ability of the human body to ingest, to digest, to make full use of the protein that is eaten in order to consume it and utilize it in a functional way. So that measurement, that scale, plants usually fall short and has a low PDCAS score compared to animal sources. Other issues with plants is usually they are lacking from the nutritional aspect, what is called the amino acid profile. Proteins are basically amino acids, and there are certain amino acids that are considered essential amino acids, and there are others. And usually a single plant source is deficient. And this pushes or forces branded companies, contract manufacturers, and the like to make use of several sources of plants in a very careful adjustment so that the final product will have good balanced amino acid profile, which is the whole purpose of humans consuming proteins to begin with. In today's era, where we have disruptions in the supply chain, fluctuations in the quality, this is a, a very problematic task. Technically, if there could be a single source that addresses the issues of flavor, the issues of digestibility, and providing the full nutritional profile, the amino acids, the essentials, and the branch, and everything in a single compound, that would be a huge advantage. And this is what our protein is all about. This is what yeast as a source of protein is all about, because yeast is slightly higher as the end evolutionary ladder than plants closer to humans. The protein it basically produces for its own survival and functionality is actually what humans prefer or humans would need. And this is exactly where we come. A non-GMO protein that provides the full spectrum of amino acids with perfect digestibility and, and this is the big thing, a neutral flavor. So you can either use it as a single element in a, whatever dairy application you're thinking about or increase the protein content of an existing food item that presumably has low protein content because of flavor and other challenges without compromising on flavor. That could also be a valid approach. Our product has been tested in certain food applications within the dairy industry. For example, yogurts. We are receiving very good feedback because on top of those nutritional aspects and flavoring aspects, it has some functional attributes that are favorable or considered valuable in applications like this or similar ones. A resistance to low pH, I'm talking about pH 2, it doesn't affect the viscosity even at high concentration. So the flowability is very, very good, even with relatively high loadings of the protein. It disperses very easily. It's a non-soluble protein, but it's highly dispersible protein, so it's very easy to work with. Those physical aspects also are advantageous in such applications I mentioned and probably others. And I guess it could be used in plant-based alternatives to dairy as well. 
again, the idea is to add up to existing applications that has inferior protein content or when it's applicable to replace the whole formulation in such manner. Yes. Just to clarify, we are not considered plants. We are considered vegan, vegan friendly, but we are not plants. It's a type of a fungi or evidently yeast, but it's not a plant. Yeah, and, and what stage are you at with the with the testing and trials? So we entered into that uh, arena in terms of the development cycle about two years ago as an idea, something on a paper. I think by then we had, I would consider this more like intuition that a technology like this could potentially have value. We started to work on pilots benchtop and later pilot throughout 2021. We started to dispense some samples and so on. And we basically ended the pilot phase, meaning qualifying a commercial scale units this December, to literally two or three weeks ago. And we are going to start commercial production using large scale equipment consistently and continuously later this month, by the end of January. Uh, we will be using a contract manufacturer in Canada. Hence, uh, our primary focus, priority is North America, but we are going to work with uh, European, uh, and we are working with European leads as well as Southeast Asia as well. We, we are approaching everyone because, again, if we are going back to the roots of the technology, one of the advantages I did not mention in terms of time to market usefulness is the use of the yeast, the, the baker's yeast. And it provides two huge unparalleled uh, advantages compared to other technologies of fermentation. Number one, baker's yeast fermentation growing and use of is ubiquitous. You, there is almost in every country, large enough, you will find a production unit because this is the essential if you want to have bread and bakery items. And if not, it's in a distance of several hours of trucking. So you will find a production unit, and this is important when you're thinking globally. The second thing is that of regulation, regulatory requirements, and there is no barrier whatsoever for the use of protein extracted from baker's yeast for food application, not a novel food, or its equivalent in other countries and not grass, because it falls under the existing category of yeast extract. I'm talking about from a regulatory perspective. So we feel that Number one, the technology is ready when it comes to the ability to implement from a functional food standpoint, to expand in terms of whether there is enough resources and infrastructure locally and globally in terms of regulation. And most importantly, the plant itself, the ability to produce tons of the material to allow brands or contract manufacturers to obtain samples of kilograms, tens of kilograms, and so on, to run experiments and to under products and to support their needs. This is happening now and will now expand further from the end of this month moving forward. And so are you already in discussions with companies about utilizing your product in their products or is there already a market for it? Yes, so we were very fortunate that we actually are starting to produce to orders. We had already people, brands that simply want to be the first with our product in their market, in their respective markets, without us 
even producing commercially before we start to produce commercially. Obviously, the product you can see is already being evaluated at literally dozens of different brands, and we want to expand it more. I want to have it tested at hundreds of different brands or contract manufacturers at various industries. And of course, there is a top priority for us. So we are just starting. Yes, it's under evaluation. We get very good feedback so far, and we hope to convert those feedbacks into long-standing supply agreements and so on. I, I suspect personally, based on my past experience, it will take months to happen, not years, but months, and I'm very optimistic. And in terms of labeling, you mentioned yeast extract. Is that how it would appear on a label? So in terms of labeling, I guess at the back panel, the source would be yeast or Saccharomyces cervicea or some other form of depiction that the source is yeast. In that context, it's, I think it could be appreciated that yeast is not considered as an allergen at all. So you can claim a non-allergenicity, and this is true all over the world. The United States, Europe, the Far East, in all those places, yeast is not considered as an allergen at all when it comes to food labeling. In terms of the future, when should we or when are you expecting to see products on shelf that have the ingredients in the products? So when it comes to applications like sport nutrition, well-being and meal replacement, we will see this on the shelf probably towards March or April, the latest. When it comes to dairy, we'll have to see how the project we already started come along and evolve. I hope to see them by the second half of next year. And I guess you're still looking for partners globally. Are you in terms of not only purchasing the product, but partnering on production? Our first priority now from a strategic point of view is obviously partners to implement the protein in food applications. Obviously, the more the better. In terms of production, I think this is the second stage. We will have the hub, as I mentioned, in Canada and where we will start supplying globally. And then local partnering and partnering in general, we feel at this point, will be a direct result of our growth or our need to grow or our potential as it's being manifested in that region. I think it will be an easy mass once we'll be able to show the, the size, the growth, the margin, etc. Then the partners will come based on our plans and hopefully what we are going to implement we will need to have those kinds of conversations also by the second half of this year, 2022. I suppose as well, it would have good sustainability credentials as well. Yeah, I briefly mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation. Fermentation, this is recognized and there are a lot of public, you just do fermentation sustainability and you'll see articles coming up from various sources, including the World Economic Forum. The beauty of the fermentation in terms of sustainability, is basically all you need is sugar and nitrogen, a source of nitrogen, which basically is other nutrients. You need water and you need a, a big vessel. And the, the advantage of that, they, number one, those are very basic resources. The sugar, in many cases, could be even a, a stream, a waste stream of the food industry, rather than just harvested sugar. And most importantly, the, the use of closed vessels and closed structures allows consistency, it allows minimal uh, 
interaction with the environment in terms of pollutants getting out or pollutants getting in. And again, the whole system is water-based because those are living creatures. It's what they need. They need water and oxygen, sugar, basically. So it's a highly sustainable approach. That's a really good overview. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? It's the first time uh, we're kind of reaching out to the dairy industry in such a manner. And we are very excited. We feel that the dairy industry has always been historically related to and so important in health and nutrition. We all talk about yogurts and Activia and those brands that carry uh, those messages. And the combination of flavor and nutrition has always always been pivotal for that industry. And, and we feel that our technology is right exactly what this industry would like to see and would like to use. And this is a very exciting opportunity to engage with and to talk to. And thank you for having me. Last month, we ran an article about a California gelato company, Uli's Gelato, being one of 50 recipients of a grant from Alibaba.com. And so that led to talking to the company's founder, Uli Nasibova, about the company and the award. So uh, the name of the company is Gelateria Uli LLC. As of this year, we're doing business as Uli's Gelato. I simplified the name a little bit. It used to go by Gelateria Uli. It was a very difficult name to remember, and most people refer to it as Uli's or Uli's Gelato anyway. I founded the company in 2012. I was an analyst um, at an investment management company. I had been in finance at that time for about seven years. So in 2012, I founded my company. For the first year, I just did a ton of R&D, experimented on recipes, just kind of dove into the craft head first. In 2013, I was already working part-time. I had transitioned into working part-time at my prior job, but in 2013, I was able to quit my job and just take the risk and actually started out. Uh, my very first order was a mail order, and back in 2013, very few people were shipping anything, especially gelato. So the root of my company is actually e-commerce because my first order was shipping out 42 boxes all over in the United States. So I very quickly had to learn how to package gelato with dry eyes, specialty insulators, specialty boxes, and all that good stuff. But at the time, I didn't really uh, have the vision for e-commerce or what it could be. So um, I opened a brick-and-mortar store in 2014. I had already signed the lease in 2013. Construction took about eight months. I did most of it myself. It was a very fun experience. And then I opened my brick-and-mortar store in 2014. And then in 2017... I opened my second brick and mortar store and um, everything was great. You know, I would say my day to day life was running two stores. I thought of myself as a brick and mortar uh, mom and pop made from scratch store owner. At the time, I was just so involved in day to day operations and the nitty gritty that I, I never imagined that I would do anything else. The, the future seemed as if I would just keep opening more stores. So 2019 was the first year actually we were profitable and it was a great year. We had just started doing wholesale to restaurants and we had a couple of big wins. 
we had one of the most prestigious restaurants in LA signed us on as a wholesale partner. We were starting to do things like Facebook had just opened a beautiful new campus in a part of LA called Silicon Beach. And, you know, we were supplying their uh, many employees with soft serve at, at their like 24-7 bit-of-the-art cafeteria. Uh, things were going great. And um, 2019 was a fantastic year. And I remember thinking, oh, 2020 is going to be my year. It's going to be incredible. So when the pandemic started, my fastest growing channel, which had been wholesale, completely died. So overnight, I went from delivering buckets and buckets of soft serve mix to the Facebook headquarters here and uh, supplying some of the busiest uh, restaurants in all of the United States to zero. Like it was just an overnight thing because at home, the orders went in. In fact, Facebook, um, their employees are still working from home. I never got that restaurant back. I did get some of my other restaurants back. In terms of brick and mortar, we had a little more support, uh, namely in the loans from the government. Not immediately, but eventually we got PPP, and um, I was able to get the economic injury disaster loan. So I actually kept the brick and mortar stores open throughout the entire pandemic and tried to keep my people employed, give them as many hours as I possibly could, but also just go back to uh, the learning mode. You know, before I was just doing the day to day operations, I would come into work and say, Okay, what's happening today? What's happening next week? What's happening next month? I kind of felt very set in the way I was running the business. And in 2020, I, I decided that I loved my business too much to lose it. I'm not going to give up. I need to adapt. And at the time, it, it wasn't immediately clear, but I could tell that the businesses that were already set up for e-commerce were doing great. I wasn't set up for e-commerce at all. And it was a very difficult period for me. The learning curve was very steep because I didn't know how to put together a website. I didn't know what the best e-commerce platform was. I didn't understand things like online checkout experience, ad marketplace, all that good stuff. So in the stores, it's really easy to win over a customer. You serve gelato to them. They taste it in front of you. Their, light, their eyes light up and you know that like, they're happy. And if they're not happy, they'll let you know. But most of the time in our stores, our customers were very happy. In fact, most of our customers came in because of impulse buy, because they would be walking by the stores and they would see this colorful display of different flavors and they'd say, oh, wow, I want to come in and buy some gelato. So now we don't have any impulse buy. Nobody's walking by the, by the stores. And now you have to win over the customer's heart and soul with things like packaging, things like pretty pictures on the website, none of which we were doing very well. That's when I decided that it's time to kind of go back to the basics and revisit everything about my branding, including the name, uh, my packaging, the way customers unbox their gelato, whether it was delivered via delivery apps or if I had shipped it to them in a box. That's what basically I've been focusing on for the past year and a half, almost two years. And that's also where Alibaba comes in because it took me a, a little bit of time to get all of my graphic assets in place. And once I did, the companies in the United States were just 
so backed up. I'm sure you, you hear this every single day, the supply chain issues we're having to this day are very, very challenging. And I think in my opinion, what had happened was the companies in the United States, because they were stretched so thin, they had to do what was best in their interest. So they would probably take orders from larger companies that were easier to work with or order quantity was high. And so naturally I went on Alibaba.com and I said, okay, I need to figure out how to get this done overseas. And that's what I've been doing. And uh, the grant money actually that I will be getting, I will be spending on covering shipping ocean freight of two less than full containers of goods, boxes, packaging, sealing machines, uh, all kinds of basically printed packaging, beautiful stuff that I need to kind of take my business to the next level because I have full faith and confidence in the quality of my product. That's basically what I have been working on since day one. And I feel like that part of the business is stable, is good. We have excellent product. Uh, what was missing and what I'm trying to solve right now is packaging it up in a way where the packaging reflects the quality that I'm selling. You mentioned at the beginning there that you were in financial services initially and then switched to gelato. Is that something you always wanted to do? Did you have experience in that kind of field? I had zero experience. I didn't know I was going to do it, but I was always a very adventurous spirit. I mean, I came to the United States at 17 by myself. I don't have any family here. Because at 16, I said, oh, you know, why don't I apply to a bunch of colleges in the United States and see what happens? I was very fortunate because I received a scholarship to attend a college in Colorado, actually. So, you know, I was the first uh, woman in my family at 17 to hop on a plane and say, bye, family. I don't know when next time I'll see you. I mean, my family wasn't very wealthy. And back then, we were especially struggling. I think my mom might have used up most of her savings to buy me one-way ticket <laughs> to Colorado. So I just always had this spirit where I was like, I'm going to try things. You live once. Whenever I've taken big risks in my life, they've always paid off. So gelato kind of entered my world randomly. I love ice cream. I enjoy eating ice cream. And at the time, L.A. was starting to get on the map, this incredible culinary center of the United States. 2000s, early 2000s, 90s, people always associated New York as this culinary capital of the United States. And Las Vegas, actually, too, has a lot of Michelin-rated stars. But LA had this other thing going for it, which was so authentic and so beautiful. A lot of it was ethnic food. A lot of it was um, kind of no bells and whistles fine dining type of quality, but in a very casual setting. And a lot of people here were also experimenting with their home cultures and home cuisine. Obviously, everyone has heard of the Koji truck, Roy Choi kind of taking his Korean heritage, but also serving tacos. That, that kind of what encapsulates Los Angeles to me. And I was wrapped up in all of that. When I moved to LA in 2007, me and my boyfriend, who later became my husband at the time, would say, okay, we would work hard during the week. And on the weekends, we would open up a map. We had a paper map still. Let's say, okay, where are we going this weekend to try out something new? 
are we going to go to the San Gabriel Valley, just east of LA to try some of the most authentic Chinese food you could have outside of China? Or are we going to go to Thai town and have incredible Thai food? Or are we going to check out that um, tent that these people set up over by the gas station and they're like whipping up tacos and there's lines around the corner every night. That was just kind of the spirit for me and my husband. And it was extremely inspiring. And a lot of the chefs that were doing these things, they were, they were starting with nothing. One thing that was missing for me as an ice cream lover was ice cream, good ice cream. I went to so many ice cream shops all over Los Angeles. And I felt like at the time, there wasn't that quality, that texture that I was looking for. Also, American ice cream is very different from European style ice cream. I am not Italian, but I like Italian style ice cream or gelato, specifically because chemically it's different than American ice cream in terms of the amount of butterfat, amount of air or overrun. I personally prefer that type of experience where the flavor is dense, it's not too sugary, there's not too much butterfat that basically coats the inside of your mouth and you cannot even taste the flavor, you know. So I started out just making my own gelato at home. And it wasn't one thing that came first. Everything was kind of happening at the same time. The recession was over, the economy was on the upswing. I was very interested in food and just entrepreneurship. I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And then I started making this gelato at home. And I truly, truly love the recipe making process. It's just so soothing, but also just so fun. And in the end, you have gelato. (laughs) And it's like the best gratification you can think of. And then when you serve it to others, everyone has a smile on their face. In the beginning, I had a test kitchen in our apartment where all my friends and neighbors knew that, okay, Uli's making gelato this weekend. We're going to go over. We're going to taste it. When it comes to gelato ice cream making, so much of it is exact science. I really love that challenge of balancing a recipe, but I also love the end product. All right. So how many flavors do you currently have? And have you dipped into plant-based as well yet? So I have over 100 recipes that I've made that are my own. About half of them are non-dairy. And um, I am not vegan. I very much enjoy dairy. I come from a country called Azerbaijan where dairy is such a big part of our diet. And not just dairy. I mean, I grew up drinking Raw, well, we would buy raw milk, but we would boil it at home. And um, we would always go to kind of like nearby farms or nearby villages. We, I lived in the city, but my parents were always very deliberate in the way they picked food and produce. So, uh, and we also had a lot of distant family in the country. So we always had um, homemade butter, farm-made butter. We always had farm-made creme fraiche homemade yogurt. I mean, every single dairy product you can think of was part of our breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That was just the lifestyle. You already mentioned Alibaba earlier. I wonder, how did you find out about the grants that they were giving away? So I'm part of this community called Hello Alice. And when the pandemic started, at first there was a lot of uncertainty, and there were these several organizations that popped up 
they were talking about grants, they were talking about hope, and, you know, they were talking about programs, and I quickly signed up for all of them. I probably have since signed up for about 50 newsletters. I religiously apply to every single opportunity that comes my way, because making money right now is so hard. And I'm very grateful that I have disaster loans from the government to cover some of that. But in the meantime, I need some wins. <laughs> I'm changing my company. I'm pivoting it to e-commerce. Hello Alice had several grants that I applied for, one of which was Alibaba. And um, I was actually really excited about that one because I'm the kind of person when I discover something, I have to tell everyone about it. And when I first discovered Alibaba, I was so excited. I am an immigrant, an international person, and I love whenever I get an opportunity to work with anything outside of the United States, just because when you live in this country, and it's a beautiful country, it's very easy to feel very isolated from the rest of the world. And Alibaba was just like glimpse into a different economy, a different culture, a whole different new system. It was fun for me. I love learning. I got to learn about customs. I got to learn about sale terms, like what is EXW price versus SOV price versus BDP price when you're buying from an overseas manufacturer. But also the same supply chain management thing I was talking about didn't really leave some of us, the smaller guy, very many options because all of the companies in the United States are working overtime, they're backed up, and they really cannot sometimes accommodate smaller orders like mine. You know, I need to find something where I can manufacture something in small quantities and pay a reasonable price. So I work with companies, verified companies on, on Alibaba.com. And the platform also verifies the suppliers. You get to read reviews. You get to see all the orders they've done. And all the companies that I'm working with have done thousands and thousands and thousands of orders. And the only reason why they can reach a person like me in the United States is because there's this platform. Otherwise, we would have never known about each other. And so where do you go from here in terms of using the grant from Alibaba and reshaping the business? Where do you go from here? I have a brand new e-commerce website that is on pause. My boxes and other packaging that I have printed will be getting on a ship December 27th. And then it will take anywhere between two to three months for everything, not only to get to me, but to clear customs. So I'm looking at end of March, most likely April, to launch my new and improved e-commerce company. The Alibaba grant is allowing me to get the goods over here and to pay custom fees. And now it's over to Ireland for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland. It's been a while, so let's see what's changed over the past few weeks. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Jamin. Very happy new year to you. Um, so the dairy markets here have started the new year in a pretty similar vein to how we finished up last year. Um, the Still quite a lot of concern around uh, Europe in terms of uh, milk collections not being as strong as people expected and, and or need. I mean, we've got some 
German milk collection numbers out this week here for November, which are, is showing kind of milk collections down 2.9% year on year. So, so still from when we look at the big producers, the Germany's, the France in particular, milk is still looking weak. And at the same time, the demand picture in Europe continues to be quite strong. Uh, and as a result, we continue to see prices slowly grind higher here. We're getting to a stage where milk equivalent levels are, are very attractive based on current commodity prices. So, you know, there is still an expectation at some stage through the season that this should stimulate additional milk. But right now, the milk isn't coming. It's not coming in the short term. Uh, and as a result, we continue to slowly grind higher here. I mean, you look at different parts of the world as well, um, and, and it's a bit of a similar picture. Um, Fonterra in New Zealand have just revised their forecast here for the season, and they expect the, the milk collections for the full season in New Zealand to be down 2.6%, which is uh, considerably lower than, than where they were expecting it to be at the start of the, uh, of the season. So, you know, some concerns on, on the milk supplies uh, in, in Oceania as well, which again is not helping this increasing price situation that we've had in, in many regions. The GDT was on uh, last week. Uh, it was the first one of the year. Um, and, you know, the results there were somewhat stable, I think, in terms of prices. Market prices did increase overall by about 0.3%, but this was certainly lower than the market and the futures had been uh, expecting or pricing in. Whole milk in particular was disappointing with a with basically unchanged, a zero move compared to the previous auction. There was a little bit of strength in skim milk powder, which was up about 1%, and butter, which was up about uh, 0.3%. But overall, I think the auction was more stable than, than people were expecting. So, you know, we're continuing to kind of uh, to look out over the coming weeks here to see if there is any signs of improvement in terms of milk collections. Um, but at the moment, uh, still still some significant challenges out there. Thanks, Charlie. Good to have you back on the podcast. And we will chat again next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for this first podcast of 2022. Three really interesting guests this week. Next time we will be talking about cybercrime, and I don't mean the jokes that I attempt to make, or maybe they are a cybercrime, who knows. Hopefully we'll also be chatting about an event taking place in just a few weeks, and that's the Ice Cream and Artisan Food Show in the UK in Harrogate. I'm really looking forward to not writing about events being cancelled and pushed back, so let's hope we start to see some normality in 2022 when it comes to travel. I think we'll be wearing masks in public places for a while though, but that's a small price to pay I guess. So much so that I actually bought a mask with a band logo on it in an attempt to look cool. But because it's an old band it probably just makes me look even more outdated and out of touch. You know you're getting old when you see a baseball player with the name Junior on their back and you remember interviewing their dad when he was a player. I better stop before it all gets too depressing. And wish you all a great week ahead, wherever in the world you may be. Please stay safe, take care, and, as always, thanks for listening.